Hello, this is the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast, and I'm your host, Jill Weber. Well, welcome everybody. I'm here today with my friend John Bowen, who's who's speaking to us from my old hometown of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I first met John 30 years ago, ish, 30 ish years ago. <laughs> When I was a university student and I wandered into a room where he was doing a presentation on the gospel according to Calvin and Hobbes. So he had me at Calvin and Hobbes and I've been a John Bowen fan ever since. (laughs) So John, I would love to hear a little bit of what you've been doing since I bumped into you in that classroom many, many years ago. Tell me what your life looks like. Oh, goodness. Um, well, to my great surprise, I will be 75 at the end of this year. Can you believe that? Not um, at You don't so look a day I, over 74. <laughs> you're so sweet. Um, I retired four years ago. Uh, the word retired has quotation marks around them. You can probably hear them. Um, and retirement is a time, they say, for doing more of the things that you love and fewer of the other things that you have to do when you're employed, right? So what do I love and do best? Preaching, teaching, mentoring, writing. And thanks be to God, that's what I have been doing for the past four years. So it's a great joy. Um, I have two children and four grandchildren. And, uh, you know, as is appropriate for grandparents, uh, they are also a source of great joy. So I'm, I'm grateful on both, both sides. Um, you said before we met, goodness, our, uh, let me go back to the beginning. I was born in Wales. Um, my wife came from the Guildford area and we were married in Guildford. Um, so we know that area quite well. Uh, I grew up in church, but made a personal commitment to Jesus through a teacher in high school, again, in North Wales, did a lot of growing through the Christian union at Oxford. I was a high school teacher. And then I worked for a student ministry in Britain for four years. I think Deborah and I always had a sense that God was calling us to work in some needy foreign mission field. And Canada turned out to be the one. (laughs) The nearest to our great surprise. I I don't want to insult our adopted country, but uh, we really didn't want to come here. But I think it has turned out to be the right thing. I think there has been a niche for us and our work um, that might not have been there in, in Britain. Uh, Deborah's an English professor. She retired three years ago from uh, teaching English at uh, Redeemer University here in Hamilton. Mm. Um, so I continued in student work in Canada. That's when we met Jill in the 90s. I was a traveling evangelist in the uh, on the university campuses and engaging university students with the gospel. Where do you begin? And Calvin and Hobbes was current and popular at that time. Well, he's still popular. My grandchildren read Calvin and Hobbes. And if you've read that that cartoon strip, you will know how often there are questions about God, life after death, right and wrong, the meaning of life. So this is just a gift because the gospel addresses all of these issues. And then out of that time of student evangelism, God called me to teach in a seminary, which was totally counterintuitive because I deeply disapproved of seminaries. (laughs) 
I felt God saying, yeah, you know, I, I really respect your views, but would you just do what I tell you? Okay. Um, and to my great surprise, those years of teaching and mentoring brought uh, great joy. And again, it was clearly the right thing to do. Mm. Jill, the older you get, the longer it takes to tell people who you are and what your life is about. So <laughs> I should stop because I have still have 73.5 years to go. There you go. There you go. Thanks, John. So part of your work is writing. And um, and so I'm, I'm holding in my hand. You can't see it, but I'll shake it around so you can hear it. Uh, I just received a wonderful copy of your book, The Unfolding Gospel, which I actually had the privilege to read before it went to publication. And, um, and so actually, that's that's why I've got you here on, on our, our podcast, because, of course, with the Order of the Mustard Seed, one of our vows, I mean, our vows to be true to Christ, kind to people, and take the gospel to the nations. And I thought, well, you know what? It probably would be good for us to talk about the gospel. You know, what is the gospel? And so when I got your book and saw that you were writing it, and um, I mean, knowing you personally and understanding the the, the breadth of the experience, not only um, of, of your lived experience, but then your reflection on your experience, plus your academic work, I thought, this is just such a great resource for us. And after I read the book, I thought this is just a fantastic sort of gospel primer to help us just understand the bare bones of what this is all about, who Jesus is calling us to be and do and all of that. So, so I just, I just, I'm grateful that you're giving me some time today and we can talk a little bit around this topic. So first of all, why did you write the book? Um. I wrote a book on evangelism back in 2002 called Evangelism for Normal People, which did okay. And then maybe four or five years ago, a friend of mine who teaches evangelism in the States contacted me and said, I'm using your book as a textbook in an evangelism course. Would you Zoom with the class at the end of the semester? I thought, yeah, that'd be great. Then I thought, I wrote that book a long time ago. What the heck did I say? So I think like most authors, what once you've had a book published, you don't sit down and read it again. Why would you do such a thing? So I went back and looked at evangelism for normal people. And I won't say I disagreed with myself a great deal, although I thought some of the humor was a bit poor. Um, but I thought, oh, wow, I, I wouldn't say it that way anymore. And I realized in those more than 15 years of teaching, interacting, preaching, speaking at conferences. Actually, my thinking had moved on from 2002. So, for instance, um, this question of what is the gospel, it does come in evangelism for normal people, but I think it's chapter eight. Mm. Again, over the years, I had begun to think, no, 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 you can't wait to chapter eight. This has to be chapter one. <laughs> And then there was nothing in the old book about discipleship. And I think since then, we have started talking about discipleship much more than we did in 2002. And it's one of these free-floating words that almost seems to mean whatever a person wants it to mean. Um, and I had come to think, unless you understand the gospel, of course, discipleship is going to be very vague. But if you understand it, then what it means actually has some pretty clear parameters. And yet in that older book, there was nothing on discipleship. So it was things like that. Um, 
And then since 2002, I've had much more involvement in church planting, uh, some of it here in Hamilton. And it's fairly well established that more people come to Christ in new churches than in old churches. Mm. Rocket science to figure out why that might be. But I thought, how can you write about evangelism without writing about church planting? So it was things like that that made me think, well, I, try, I confess, I tried, first of all, to rewrite the old book. But didn't some famous person say something about you shouldn't put new wine in old wineskins? <laughs> Who yeah. was that guy? I heard it somewhere. And that's what I was trying to do. So in the end, I said to the publisher, what if I proposed, wrote, wrote a whole new book? And they liked the idea. So that's where it came from. That's right. And we've got it. And we've got it here in, in our hands. So let's talk about the gospel. So tell me, what is the gospel? How did you come to, <laughs> just in like 10 words or less. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, we could spend our whole time talking just about the definition. I, I love yeah. in the book, you kind of go on a journey in terms of exploration of, you know, what, what how did Paul define the gospel? How do we define the gospel? And so um, and then ultimately how Jesus, you know, frames the gospel. So let, take us on that journey. Oh, goodness. I mean, you said do it in ten, ten words. Of course, in one sense, you know, that the gospel is one word and that's Jesus. You, you knew I was going to say that, didn't you? <laughs> I think growing up as a Christian, I would have said, now don't panic when I say this, I would have said the gospel is that through the death of Jesus on the cross, our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God. I say don't panic because I still believe that with all my heart. I'm passionate about that. Yeah. But I think also it is, it's more than that. that. That is, if you like, the centerpiece. But God is not only concerned for human beings and their souls, that God is concerned for the whole of life because God created the whole of life. Sin has messed up everything in our lives, not just our souls. And therefore, the work that Christ does in his cross and resurrection is not just the restoration of our souls, it is the restoration of everything that God has made. Um, I tell in, in the book, I tell the story of a woman who came up to me in the break of a, a conference and said, you're talking about Jesus renewing all things. And that, that's the good news. I thought it was about Jesus dying for our sins. And I felt so terrible, Jill, because I thought, did I really communicate that badly that you thought it was the one thing and not the other? Mm. No, it's the whole bang shooting match. And then I came across this brilliant quote from Tim Keller, which I'm going to read. He says, when we look at the whole scope of the Christian storyline, we see clearly that Christianity is not only about getting one's individual sins forgiven so we can go to heaven. That is an important means of God's salvation, but not the final end or purpose of it. Hmm. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to put the whole world right, to renew and restore the creation, not to escape it. It's not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to the world. God created both body and soul, and the resurrection of Jesus shows that he's going to redeem both body and soul. The work of the Spirit of God 
is not only to save souls, but also to care for and cultivate the face of the earth, the material world. I just thought, good for you, Tim Keller, because Tim Keller is quite conservative theologically in a lot of ways. But I thought there, he's really conveying the bigness of the gospel. That the, the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, God is making all things new. Mm. And part of that making new is you and me, through our sins being forgiven and our reconciliation to God. Yeah. But it includes relationships, includes our relationship with the natural world, our relationship with culture. Let's say everything that God has made, God wants to redeem because we have messed it all up pretty effectively. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting preachy, Joe. You should just no, stop no, me. No, no, that's all right. That's, that's I mean, it's a good preach. sermon, right? <laughs> That'll preach. <laughs> all right, so there's our definition of the gospel. I love the... You know, Jesus saying, I will make all things new mm -hmm. and our invitation into being, you know, gospel carriers or proclaimers or, or of the gospel or embodying, you know, all of that, that invitation for us to, to go on the path with Jesus towards that, that end. Talk to us a little bit about um, repentance and conversion and discipleship as it, yeah. as it relates to the gospel. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like to explain the gospel from Mark chapter 1, where Jesus comes along and preaches the kingdom and says, repent and believe. I, you know, I, I'm summarizing the book. Well, I only have so many thoughts, right? And they, they're in books and they're in things I say. It's all the same stuff. Yeah. Um, so he says, repent and believe. And then I think what happens next is that Mark gives us an illustration of what it means to repent and believe. Immediately, having made the announcement, Jesus calls the disciples. And they leave their nets and they follow him. So do they repent and believe? It, it doesn't say that they do. And there are people in the Gospels who are doing bad stuff, like Matthew and Zacchaeus, who repent of their sins in a very obvious way. They get up and walk away from their previous evil lifestyle. But the four first disciples were fishermen, which is, you know, an honest occupation. They were good guys. Do they repent? I would say, yes, they do, because the word repent means to turn around, to change your mind. Do they change their minds? You better believe it. They think they know what life is all about, right? Uh -huh, yeah. Doing an honest day's work, taking care of your family, going to synagogue, having a drink with your friends. And now they think, shoot, that's not what it's about. It's about, it's about this kingdom stuff and it's about this guy. And sometimes I think we talk about repentance in too superficial a way. Like, you have to give up your shop stealing, your, your shoplifting. Well, yes, you do. But the, Phari the Pharisees weren't shoplifters, right? They cleaned up their act. But they hadn't repented in this big sense of saying, wow, we're wrong about everything. We need to give our lives to Jesus and this kingdom thing. That's where the truth is. That's where life is to be found. So repentance is a really 
big, deep thing, and I don't think we honor the gospel or in people, indeed people's lives if we make it giving up our sins. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. But it's the sin, this life that is oriented away from God. Here's another example. Sometimes we say, well, sin is self-centeredness. But I don't know about you, Jill. I know some people who are far from being Christians, but they're not self-centered. Mm-hmm. And it would be ridiculous to spend a lot of time trying to convince them they are self-centered. But you know what? They are self-directed. Yeah. The nicest people. If you say, who's in charge of your life? When you decide to go to school and to get married, what jobs take? Who makes those decisions? And they'll sound surprised. and say, well, I do. Like, how can you even ask the question? And that, to me, is a sign of someone who has not repented. Hmm. It's like that phrase you hear so often, oh, I've got to be my own person. Oh, God help us. <laughs> I, I don't want to be my own person. That's a recipe for hell. <laughs> right? I want to be Jesus' person. Yeah. Because he made me, he knows who I'm meant to be. You know, it's not, not a matter of, of me being whoever I want to be. I have no idea who I want to be, but I do know someone who knows what I should be and what I'm capable of becoming. Yeah. So I'm trying to follow him. Are you getting pre- you're asking me questions that are making me preachy. No, stop it's, good. it's good. All right. So we're talking about repentance. Let's talk about discipleship. <laughs> nice small topics. Yeah, the yeah, right, and right. discipleship. All right. Well, here's my take on discipleship. Again, start with Mark 1 and the whole experience of the 12 and the 70 as they hung out with Jesus and went around with him. What were they doing? We call them disciples, but disciple is kind of an old religious word. We, normal people don't use the word disciple very much, yeah. except in a sort of superficial way. So I, sh- I stopped using the word disciple and started saying, well, um, uh, a disciple is actually a learner. If you're a disciple, you're a student of Jesus Christ. And then it occurred to me, for most people, if you use the word student, they think of people, generally young people, sitting in rows, taking notes from the sage on the stage, right? Do you know the old definition of a a, a lecture? No. A lecture is the means by which the professor's notes become the student's notes without passing through the minds of either. Oh, got to think about that. Well, I mean, that's not what Jesus is about, right? Sure, there are some sermons, but most of it is going from place to place, them asking questions, him replying very unhelpfully with other questions. They watch him. He gives them jobs to do. There is a word for that kind of learning. Um, I, I remember preaching about this at my own church, and I called up a friend from the congregation, Ken, who is an electrician. I didn't tell him why I wanted him to answer my question. My my question was, Ken, how did you become an electrician? Yeah. And with some puzzlement, he said, well, Monday we went to electrician school and third lectures. Tuesday to Friday, we were out on the job with the master electrician, learning on the job. It was an apprenticeship. So 
And I know Dallas Willard uses this word, but I, he doesn't unpack it in, in the way that I think is so helpful, that a disciple means being an apprentice of Jesus. So, yes, there is theory to study, lectures and sermons to listen to, really good books about the gospel to read. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't need to tell you, the majority of the Christian life is learning in practice, on the road, with your hands, doing real stuff in the world, knowing that Jesus has gone before you, Jesus has prepared good works for you to, to walk in so that we grow into his likeness by working alongside him, learning to do the sort of things that he does. So, it, yeah, it, it's an apprenticeship. Part of my work for many years has been in evangelism. I don't think I'm really an evangelist, but you can do the work of an evangelist, which is not the same thing. Um, I find this image of the apprentice makes a lot of sense to people outside the faith. Mm. If I said, oh, well, a Christian is a disciple of Jesus, I don't think that would convey very much. But people know what an apprenticeship is, whether or not they've actually done one. And I think that that makes a lot of sense, that you're learning to do the things that Jesus did. And if I can add a rider, this is how it connects to the gospel. Jesus announces the kingdom. God is at work to make all things new. Repent and believe. Give up what you're doing. Follow me. Join in with this work. So what are we apprenticing in? We're apprenticing in this work that God is doing through Jesus of making all things new. Yeah. So once you grasp that's the gospel, then you know what it means to follow Jesus because he is inducting you into that way of life, that way of living, that way of being in God's world. And that's got implications too in terms of how we then make disciples. I think oftentimes we churches where you know struggle with discipleship and and because I think our primary modality is the Sunday service and the Wednesday Bible study, you know yeah. whatever that would be. And so you know, and then we're wondering why people's lives aren't transformed. Mm -hmm. And so if we picked up that the modality of apprenticeship our, ourselves and and I mean, that was one of the reasons why, when we were, did the house of prayer in, in Hamilton, um, I wanted people living in the house with Kirk and myself because I wanted life on life discipleship. I wanted to do life with other people as we attempted to practice the way of Jesus together, you know, so that we were actually in it <laughs> together day in, day out in the real stuff of life rather than just a classroom somewhere in a disembodied kind of way. And so, yeah. yeah, I think that's got implications on how we then go and make disciples. Yes, I mean, here's an example. Um, as you know, Jill, there is a place in Hamilton called Micah House, mm -hmm. which is a place for refugee claimants to stay while they get used to Canada and figure out the legal processes. So there was a guy I spent a year with he was interested in Christian faith. So we met every two weeks and worked through the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> and one of the things we talked about was being a Christian is not just these strange, weird ideas, beliefs stuck in your head. It means you make different choices. You do different things. 
So I actually took him with me to Micah House to stuff the newsletters in envelopes as they went to the donors. And I said to him, when you begin to follow Jesus, this is the kind of thing that it will involve. You know, serving these people who have nothing. Uh, it may not be through Micah House, but it gives you a taste of what it will be like. And I, I think increasingly helping someone become a Christian is not just helping change their minds, but even before they become Christians, they can begin to do the things that Christians do. Yeah. I mean, I, I can think of other examples. A friend in Vancouver, um, some people from his church were creating um, a vegetable allotment next to a very impersonal high-rise. And someone from the high-rise apartment block came and said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're from this church and we're growing fresh vegetables for people in this building. And he said, can I help? So what should they say? They didn't say, well, are you a Christian? Because only Christians can do this. He said, no, <laughs> pick up a, a shovel and, and help. So he got involved with Christians doing the things that Christians do. And it took him some months to figure out what it meant to be a Christian and decide, yes, he wanted to follow Jesus. But in one sense, he was already following Jesus. He's learning to do the things that Christians do. If you like, his hands were converted before his head was converted or his mm -hmm. heart. It works different ways. You know that. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Good. So on from discipleship, let's talk about the gospel and culture. It sort of feels like we live in perilous times culturally. There's just so much going on on so many fronts. And so, you know, how does understanding the gospel in this way help us to, to live into the culture that we're embedded in right now, like it, like it or not? Yes. I, I suppose I, I, I would start with creation. In one sense, that's the foundation of everything. God created us cultural beings. Anytime two people interact, they figure out a way to do it, they have a culture. Um, former Roman Catholic Archbishop of Liverpool had this wonderful definition of culture. He said, um, culture is the way we do things around here. <laughs> I love that. And it's not bad. I mean, if I come to your house for a meal, there's a certain way that you do a meal and I will adjust and learn and celebrate with you. And then if you have hundreds or thousands or millions of people interacting, the way they choose to do it is culture. And that's part of the way God has created us. And I say that because I think for some Christians, culture is inevitably an evil thing. It is the world. It's the same as culture. I think of a student at a theological college, which shall be nameless, who said, oh, I do hope they don't start bringing culture into the chapel. <laughs> well, you can guess what he meant, but I know enough about theological college chapels to tell you they have a pretty strong and distinctive culture already. There is no a cultural context in the world. So it's good for us to acknowledge that and say culture itself is a good thing. But like any good thing that God has made, 
human beings in their sinfulness can twist it and misuse it and use it yeah, for destructive purposes. And it seems to me a godly culture uh, will foster human flourishing. I only learned that phrase recently. I think it's such a great phrase, human flourishing. Isn't that another way of um, explaining what Jesus meant by abundant life? Mm. And culture needs to enable people to flourish in every respect. So what do we do if we have a sense that we understand something of how God wants us to interact in culture and things around us don't represent that well one thing that we do is we live out what we think is a godly culture among ourselves you may know that famous quotation from leslie newbegin about the best hermeneutic of the gospel is the life of a christian community that's not the exact words but it's close enough yeah. meaning if you want to know the truth of christianity the best thing you can do is watch a christian community in action because that will well, pretty idealistic, isn't it? That will convince you that <laughs> one, Christianity one is would, true. One would hope, or at least a one community trying. <laughs> hey, it's, a, it's a great theory. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so you model a better way of doing things. But then I think you, you talk to people, you influence to whatever extent you can. I think sometimes Christians stay too much in their Christian ghetto. Yeah. When I, when I worked with students in Britain for four years, if I went to visit Christian students in a particular cafeteria, uh, cafeteria university, and it happened to be lunchtime, I knew where I would find them all, which cafeteria and which tables they would be sitting at, because they always stuck together. Yeah. And I didn't think that was a very good witness. So to encourage students, I encourage Christians to get out there and mingle with people. I mean, I, I have a lovely group that I meet with once a week. Um, no Christians among them. We, we group of about 10 people. We meet for coffee every week. Done it for years. It's a good Friday when I can come back and tell my wife I was able to talk about Jesus today. It doesn't happen every week. But I'm trying to be there as salt and light, to use Jesus' images from the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. I think we need to be out there modeling, persuading, uh, talking, sharing, telling our stories, and in a, in a gentle way, trying to convince people that God's way of living in the world actually is the most life-giving. It is the way that contributes to human flourishing. There you go. Well, in culture. So a lot of our listeners are people who have made or are seriously considering making a vow to take the gospel to the nations. What last words would you like to say to them before we pray? I do think that vision of all nations is central and it's one that we have forgotten. Goes back to Genesis 12 which Paul says in Galatians, is the gospel beforehand. Mm. Who knew the gospel was in Genesis 12? What's in Genesis 12? Well, it's God's promise, through your descendants, I will bless all the families of the earth. 
So there it is, a promise for all the nations. So I do think we need it in our heads. But the interesting thing about our world today is that the nations are not somewhere else. The nations are here. I mean, Hamilton, as you know, is a wildly multicultural city. I mean, my wife and I can go for a walk down by the lake and there are 100 people and we hear 20 different languages being spoken, none of which is English. <laughs> so all nations are everywhere. But it can also be surprising, as I said in talking about our own lives, we never expected to come to Canada. Lord, all nations must mean Africa or Asia or Middle East. And God said, well, actually, all nations does, does include Canada. Would you mind? That's where I need you right now. So I think that openness, again, as an apprentice, you often get invited and encouraged to do things that are not very comfortable. So it may be going around to the other side of the world to share the gospel. It may be meeting neighbors who've come from the other side of the world to your city and befriending them because they're often lonely and disoriented. But I do think if we don't see as part of the vision that John has in Revelation of the end of time as a place, a celebration of all nations, we're missing something that is absolutely central to the, the Bible's picture of heaven. Yeah. So go for it. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you, John. It's been so good to sort of do this hop, skip, and a jump across these big, big, big conversations in terms of what the gospel is and how it relates to conversion, repentance, and discipleship and, and interaction with cultures. So we've just skimmed the surface and I just encourage our listeners to, to pick up the book and have a read. You can do a more of a deep dive with John in it. And uh, Jill, what, what was it you said the name of the book was? <laughs> the Unfolding Gospel. The, uh, the good news makes sense of discipleship, church, mission, and everything else. Go ahead. Wow, the unfolding. the unfolding gospel. That sounds really fascinating. And who wrote it? Oh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> Must have been some smart guy yeah. <laughs> who also likes Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Wonderful. John, thanks so much for your friendship. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm wondering, could you pray for us? I would love to do that. Lord Jesus, thank you for my friends listening to this podcast around the world. We're so grateful for your good news that you have come and you are restoring all things, including us. So I pray for my friends around the world that today you will give them a fresh glimpse of what it means that you've brought good news. May they discover something of that good news in their lives and their environment. And will you empower them to be good news and talk good news uh, to those that they meet? Lord Jesus, we pray that your work may go forward this day and that somehow you'll use even us to do something in, in that work. And we look forward to that day when it will all be renewed and we see you face to face. 
We pray in your powerful name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Order of the Mustard Seed podcast. For more information about the order, you can find us at orderofthemustardseed.com or on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. May God grant us grace as we follow his invitations to be true and to be kind and to go.